Morning, Glory America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. Greetings to the rest of the world from the ReliefFactor.com studio on the West Coast. I am Hugh Hewitt, joined by Dr. Matthew Spaulding. He leads the Kirby Center, which is Hillsdale College's lantern lighthouse of reason in the shadow of the Capitol. And he's done so for many years. All things Hillsdale, by the way, all of them. All the free online courses, your opportunity to sign up for Imprimus, which is the absolutely free monthly speech digest, which is indispensable. All of the Hillsdale dialogues dating back to 2013, all available at hillsdale.edu. And you ought to go there and start getting smart. Matt Spaulding, welcome. We got a lot of ground to cover today. We got to go fast. Lots of stuff happening, including your great trip, I understand. Uh, We're going to talk about the Bolton interview, but only after I ask you, let's start with some Hillsdale Dialogue prototype, compromise in the history of America. Let's start with Henry Clay. Why do we remember Henry Clay, uh, Matt Spaulding? Well, Henry Clay was the uh, known as the great compromiser. He's in the he's prior to Lincoln. He, let's put it this way: here's why you need a little Henry Clay. Abraham Lincoln said he is my beau ideal of a statesman, and if that's not a reason to study him, <laughs> there isn't really one. Right. Why is that? Compromise of 1820. He saw he did the compromise which solved the nullification crisis. He laid the groundwork for the Compromise of 1850, which was essentially almost the end of his career. Would you stop, Matt, and explain the nullification crisis before we go to 1850? Uh, well, this one's actually key, because I think there's a model here for today. We can come back to that. Nullification crisis. South Carolina wants to nullify a tariff law. Uh, and it was a high tariff, and it was a tariff they thought damaged the South especially. They nullified it individually, the state of South Carolina, which... Um, Overwhelmingly, Webster, Clay, all thought it was unconstitutional, very dubious ground as a single state nullification. Uh, They were going down that path very rapidly. Andrew Jackson is president of the United States. Um, He wants to smash them uh, and use military force to do so. Uh, Henry Clay is in the Senate. He comes up with a compromise, uh, which is to reduce the tariff over time, but he also passes something called the Force Act, which gives Jackson the authority to do something, but he constrains it and he pulls it back under congressional authority. Interesting. That's an interesting model. Uh, because, but, but the general theory of Clay's approach to these questions, which I think we need to think about today, is in order to truly have a compromise, if you have two positions which have taken a principled position, there's no possibility of a compromise. That's why you have something like a civil war. Clay's argument was you've got to find room to allow both sides to think they get something, something they can compromise about, and it's got to be somewhat ambiguous. So, for instance, the South thought they got rid of the, the tariff, but he did very slowly over time, which allowed the pro-tariff people to say they kept the tariff. And, and how the did it happen? Is he- yep. Everyone wins, or at least they can say so they Everyone won. seems they get something. So on the one hand, he thought, Jackson thought, he got presidential authority to enforce against the nullifiers in South Carolina. But at the same time, Clay wrote it so it pulled it back into Congress and took away presidential power. Now, everybody thought they got something. You did it simultaneously. Boom. You've got a compromise. How did that then play out in 1850? 30 years later, Henry Clay's still there compromising. What, what happened then? Well, remember, Clay's trying to buy. He sees the possibility of civil war coming. He's not oblivious to that. He knows this crisis is building. Over time, it's getting worse. He's essentially trying to buy time. By the time you get to 1850, 
um, uh, the compromise is a little bit harder. Uh, they're bringing in California comes in. Um, uh, there there's some resolutions having to do with Texas borders, New Mexico. Uh, they get rid of slavery in the District of Columbia, but they also pass a fugitive slave law. So that's a good example of a compromise where both sides really have to swallow something they really don't like. Um, that's a harder compromise. And, you know, four years after that, you get the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And, you know, at that point, there's really not a possibility of that kind of compromise anymore. Clay fades away. Stephen Douglas comes to the fore to try it again on dubious grounds. That's why Abraham Lincoln comes into the picture. Do you think that it is possible for the national declaration of an emergency to be an avenue towards compromise? Well, here's, here's what, uh, what I'm thinking, right? So on the one hand, I think the, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of interesting aspects of this discussion going on, fascinating things being written. I think it's very clear that there, there, there are two aspects of the question. One is, can, he, can the president declare an emergency? And there was an emergency um, uh, a piece of legislation, National Emergencies Act in 1976, uh, which is a legislative statute. Um, and then there are all sorts of statutes which give him authority here and there to collect money, redirect money towards uh, things he thinks are necessary under the, under the emergency. Um, we can talk about all those things. There are interesting aspects of this. I think he's on strong ground if he wants to go down that path. I think it's not a good idea, although there are 30 national emergencies right now. President Obama used it several times, including over swine flu. Um, there's a larger problem about what, it, what that means about how we govern ourselves that I wanted to mention. Um, but the possibility of a compromise is important because I think the great deal would be uh, Congress funds the wall over time, draws it out some. Uh, you give them some other things, maybe some DACA legalization, but not too much. But then the other piece, third piece of legislation would be what Congress should do. The problem with this, this emergency power is they've delegated to the executive, I think wrongly and, and um, really in a violation of their own constitutional authority to legislate. They should pull it back. They should pull that delegation back from the executive so the Democrats can say they slapped him on the wrist, but let, he gets his wall. Let me modify and see what you think about this, Matt. In the Declaration of National Emergency, the president lays out under both his Article II authority and his 1976 statutory authority, not just his decision to fence the border, but also his decision to make permanent the DACA recipients. In other words to put into the same package and oblige opponents to sue as an excess of his authority the compromise you just outlined. Would you be in favor of that or against that? I'm sorry, so, so to add to that, pulling back the DACA authority? No, no, making permanent the DACA authority. For Trump to adopt the Obama position in the course of also asserting the right to build the steel fence, and he says explicitly... Right. I'm just doing this to compromise. And so if you're attacking the wall and my use of that, you're going to bring down the DACA permit I've just extended as well. Um, well the, the, here's, here's, here's how I would, on, on the one hand, I, I would agree. On the other hand, here's the problem, which is one aspect, I think, of this compromise, which is pushing us towards the larger problem we face, is we need to get to a point where we're reinvigorating Congress as a legislative branch. 
and and uh, if part of the compromise actually encourages and strengthens uh, the, this sense of executive power, you know, legislating through the executive, I think uh, only if that's a threat that causes Congress to pull it back, I think, think that would be probably you know, more set more of a problematic precedent that I'd like to have out there. Well, he could say um, this is, uh, you know, in the old days in Rome, when they declared a dictator and it had a different connotation, it was for six months uh, only. And then you had to give back the power. If the president's emergency declaration said we're going to build walls for six months, I'm extending DACA for six months, and Congress has six months to make both of them permanent or neither of them permanent, or I will veto the alternative. Right. That's there kind of go. the way Something to get like that. That's that's the way I would do it. So you, you you design it so that the immediate effect gives people what they want, but it pushes us in the direction of getting out of this larger crisis we face, which is increasingly presidents are given more and more power. Congress is delegating power, legislative power to the executive, and you're setting up conditions where the executive can do things on their own. The, 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 the pushback to Congress, I think, is an important aspect of making this work. Um, and they get a policy, something out of that. They get some DACA, he gets some wall, and the Constitution gets a win. And we get a win for the Constitution. I'm talking with Dr. Matthew Spaulding, head of the Kirby Center. Follow it online at the Kirby Center from Hillsdale College at Hillsdale, dot, uh, at Hillsdale online on Twitter or at Hillsdale.edu. So, Dr. Spaulding, yesterday I read, why is it that Article 2 and 3 are so interested in increasing their power and Article 1 seems so lazy about it? You agree with that assessment. Last, we got a minute to the break. Uh, uh, I, I do it. And, and when I keep referring to the crisis we face, that's the big one. Why are we here? Congress has been over time delegating power to the, uh, to the executive branch, and it's not been budgeting. So as a result, we go into omnibus negotiations, which pushes towards shutdowns. That's what got us here. So oddly enough, if President Trump does this and declares a national, uh, an emergency over the wall, he will be u- using emergency powers, I think, uh, broadly delegated away from the legislative ban- branch to solve a problem created by the fact that the legislative branch is not doing its legislative duty. Absolutely. When we come back, we're going to talk about the president's commander-in-chief power and what John Bolton told me that raised a lot of eyebrows last hour. Matt Spaulding will return the Kirby Center's director and from Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale, at hillsdale.edu. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue this week with Dr. Matt Spaulding, the director of the Kirby Center, Hillsdale College's lantern of reason in the shadow of the Capitol, which so often lacks it in Washington, D.C. He's been the director there for many years. Today, we've been talking about compromises and executive orders and national emergencies. Now, I want to switch abroad into the president's Article Two authority. Um, I added the national security advisor on last hour, Dr. Spaulding, and here was my first question or so to him. Did you discuss Israel's strikes at the Iranian Revolutionary Guard emplacements and weapons in Syria and whether President Trump supported Israel's right to conduct those strikes? Yeah, yes, we had extensive discussions on that, really uh, continuing the conversations we've had for a long time. President Trump is a very strong supporter of Israel's uh, right to self-defense. We've supported them right across the board as Iran has tried to arm uh, elements of the Syrian regime and the Hezbollah terrorists with increasingly sophisticated missiles uh, that can hit targets all over uh, Israel and and put the the very existence of the Israeli state in jeopardy. So this is obviously an existential question for the Israelis and and one that we regard with utmost seriousness. You're a former U.N. ambassador and now the national security advisor. Have you discussed with President Trump and or Prime Minister Netanyahu 
Israel's right under Article 51 of the U.N. Charter to strike at the source of those soldiers of the IRGC and the weapons they are sending to Hezbollah? Sure. You know, uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and I are both members of the union of former U.N. ambassadors. Huh. So we have a lot of uh, connection on that score. And uh, for your listeners, of course, Article 51 in the U.N. Charter embodies what, uh, what the text of the charter calls the inherent right of individual and collective self-defense. And that's something we have stressed over and over again for Israel. You know, uh, I know you're familiar with the, the uh, saying people often call Israel the canary in the mine shaft uh, when it comes to the United States, that people would like to criticize Israel or constrain Israel's options, both for its own sake and because they know ultimately it's the same argument to limit America's ability to defend itself. So we're very interested in maintaining uh, that unfettered right Israel has, of its, and the U.N. Charter itself calls it the inherent right of individual and collective self-defense. So uh, stop right there. Uh, Matt Spaulding, that's pretty clear, isn't it? I, I think that's uh, pretty clear, and, 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 and then some. <laughs> what strikes me is this whole, this, that whole statement and what's going on and what we're observing is so different than the way the media normally perceives it. We we're told that this is all in crisis and everything's out of control. Uh, I was struck by that interview and, and what's been going on over there in Pompeo um, as some very interesting, serious thinking consistent with a, uh, what the president seems to be doing, uh, a, a, a kind of a new and strengthening policy uh, developing very quickly. You know, what I think is happening, Dr. Spaulding, is that the media was the echo chamber that Ben Rhodes described it to be generally. They love the JCPOA, the Iran deal. Uh, Trump has trashed that. And now his right and left arms, Mike Pompeo and John Bolton, are out putting together the anti-Iran coalition again. And they don't like it. No, and, and it's, uh, but, but also it's not seeming to be um, out of control on the one hand. It's, they seem to be really thinking it through, and there seems to be a plan um, and they don't know what to make of it. So they're reporting that uh, we're, we're, we're leaving Syria and this is all uh, completely imploding. Um, and there's no plan here. And it's merely Trump sending out a tweet. But it seems if, if you, you tell me you spent some time with him, there, there seems to be a, a lot of coordination going through in terms of how this is happening in the Middle East and, and what's Turkey up to and what, what are we doing. And, and uh, that strikes me more as a... Uh, the way foreign policy should be conducted, and I'm wondering whether the that Trump approach, that that more aggressive approach, is actually appropriate and working out well in the Middle East. Now you have Bolton and Pompeo playing it out for him. When we come back from break, I'm going to play for you how his criti- criticism of the media is that they're attempting to find divides within the administration that do not exist. In fact, what they've got is a very coordinated policy, a dance between all of our allies, but a united uh, uh, Trump, Pompeo, Bolton. Uh, message. And and it doesn't seem like the media wants to carry that message, that they're united. They want to carry a message of they don't know what they're doing. They're in disarray because they hate Trump too much. Um, We'll find out what Matt Spaulding thinks about that. Don't go anywhere, America. Coming right back with more of the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu, including an amazing new course by Victor Davis Hanson and Larry Arnhem, The Second World Wars, the book that I took with me on this trip to Israel and Turkey and read voraciously. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 33 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you so much for joining me during this Hillsdale Dialogue, the last radio hour of every week with 
Either Dr. Larry R. and the president of Hillsdale College. One of his colleagues today is Dr. Matthew Spaulding. He leads the Kirby Center, the think tank that Hillsdale maintains inside the Capitol in the shadow of the Congress. A wonderful facility from which to broadcast and to meet over there at the Kirby Center. Uh, and there's no better person than Matt Spaulding to do a uh, post-interview rundown of what we just heard. Because sometimes when you do an interview, you're not actually hearing what's said. And Dr. Spaulding's been listening very closely. How long have you been in D.C., Matt Spaulding? Uh, about, oh, 25 years or so. I've, I've, I've seen him come and seen him go. And you listen very closely. So let's play the next exchange with the ambassador from this morning, Ambassador John Bolton, National Security Advisor to President Trump, and see what Matt Spaulding hears. You said in your joint appearance with Prime Minister Netanyahu at his home in Jerusalem that Iran's strategic goal of acquiring nuclear weapons capable of being delivered has not changed. Did you and he discuss how to deter that strategy or destroy the ability to make it happen? Well, you know, we had very extensive discussions on that because I think uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, feels that that threat from Iran is really the most serious threat that uh, Israel faces. So uh, a lot of things I can't talk about, obviously, in public, but uh, President Trump, I think, has made it clear publicly on any number of occasions uh, how concerned he is about the proliferation of nuclear weapons, whether it's North Korea, Iran, or anybody else. And uh uh, he's a strong believer in, uh, in in taking steps with Israel and others in the region who are like-minded to make sure Iran never gets to that point. Is President Trump open to a strike on Iran's nuclear facilities if uh, Tehran again begins to creep close to a nuclear breakout? Well, I wouldn't want to get into specifics, as you might imagine. I think the president uh, looks at all his options constantly, as I say, uh, on a subject of this seriousness, uh, this is something we coordinate very closely with Israel on, but but uh, for reasons I'm sure you can understand, we have to uh, keep our cards close to the vest. You're Matt Spaulding, what are those cards? Uh, well, well for first, let's back up a second. I'm glad to hear he has cards and he's holding them close. <laughs> what, what, what I hear, going back to your earlier point about how the media wants to mischaracterize all this, this is a this is a this is a wonderful interview. Uh, and this whole period, I think, is very instructive. They want to suggest there's chaos and, and nothing going on. And, and what I'm hearing is is a perfectly natural uh, distinction between a president saying something at a high kind of level about what he wants to do, and then it's now playing out through his uh, top uh, top people with purpose. And they're speaking in terms of just listen to the words he's using: threats, regions, interests. Um, this is, this is a way of thinking about statecraft and strategy that we've not heard from in a while. This is about a hierarchy of, of, of importance. Um, and talking to our allies about regional threats, about the uh, existential things going on over there that threaten uh, us and all of our allies and our cause. So I, I was struck by, by the importance of all that. And, of course, he would say, it would, not only is he holding cards close to the vest, but there are certain things I can't talk about. Everything is on the table. This is, of course, the way we should be talking, especially in the Middle East, where that kind of nuance or, or lack of information can be more influential. Uh, absolutely. Uh, the, fact over there talking with Net, the fact that he's over there talking with Netanyahu very closely and coming out, um, and the Turks see this, of course, and everybody else sees this, that sends a huge message left unstated in the words. They're holding their cards close to their vests. I, I thought it was actually quite powerful. Next part. 
Your trip to the Western Wall with Israel's ambassador to the U.S., Ron Dermer, and American ambassador Friedman uh, to Israel, it was quite remarkable. And then you went deep into the tunnel archaeological excavation. What was the visit and the tour intended to communicate uh, from the president to the world? Well, you know, I'm a I'm a huge uh, uh, student of history. I think there's so much we learn from it, and to be able to go literally as we descended layers down close to the to the part of the of the uh, temple wall that you can't see because it's been obscured by building over the millennia. Uh, not only are you going down in elevation, you're going down through hundreds, even thousands of years of human history, and uh, shows the uh, deep connection of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. Uh, but it was really, it was, I thought, a very nice gesture by the Israeli government. I didn't intend any political statement by it. And it just shows how hard it is to uh, to make progress in the Middle East, where even doing a little tourism uh, causes some people to object politically. Uh, for a second, do, do you buy that um, at all? That was actually quite beautiful. Right? He didn't intend, didn't intend to send any signal by that. Now, he might not have intentionally done that, and he might have thought about it as looking at some history. He's greatly interested in history. But having said that, what it does is it's, it's another example of, of where, where something that is true and, and um, powerful in and of itself, merely as a tourist uh, stop, actually sends a deep message unintentionally because that message is inherent in our history itself, right? He went down through the millennia, literally going down into the ground through history to show the deep connections, use of of that word deep. Um, I I thought that was extremely significant. I'm sure whether it was specifically intended or not, although it probably was, of course, it does send precisely that message. We are deeply rooted going back to our deepest histories well before uh, the United States to those deep theological, uh, historical roots uh, by which the United States and Israel are connected. You know, going back uh, to the beginning of the Hillsdale Dialogue, Matthew Spaulding, we began with Homer and Genesis with Dr. Arne in 2013. And what he was talking about, the ambassador was talking about, is that Israel's claim on that land is the most historically authenticated claim anywhere in the world about any piece of dirt because the Holy of Holies, what they haven't tunneled into the Holy of Holies, there is a tunnel outside of the wall that is next to the Holy of Holies. Mm-hmm. That's just um, amazingly powerful and, and absolutely true, which means that uh, he understands, and more broadly speaking, signaling to the world that the America understands that connection, which is theirs. Uh, there's something going back to the very roots of Western civilization uh, in that place that we wish to protect. And I think he precisely sent exactly that point. And, of course, everyone else was watching. Now, the next. And that's how you speak, without, that's how you speak while keeping your cards close to your vest. Exactly. It was brilliant. Next. There was a possibility that on Monday you were going to meet with Turkey's President Erdogan. That did not happen. Is it because he'd already gotten the message from your remarks in Israel or that he didn't want to hear President Trump's message? Well, you know, we, we uh, through the embassy, had asked for a meeting. And uh, indeed, uh, in the conversation between President Trump and President Erdogan on December the 23rd, it was President Erdogan himself who invited me to come to Turkey. But uh, I delivered the message that the president wanted delivered to my counterpart, in effect, the uh, Turkish National Security Advisor. We had a large delegation of uh, military, State Department personnel. Uh, The discussions continued at a military-to-military level after I left. 
So, uh, you know, politics uh, takes place all around the world, and and, uh, your listeners might be interested to know that there are nationwide local elections in uh, Turkey on March the 31st, and uh, as I was told by the Turks, that's sort of the equivalent of the U.S. midterm congressional elections. So I wouldn't be surprised there is a little display of politics there. Uh, Neither would I. What has been the president's message to Turkey about our allies, the Kurds, in northern Syria? Well, in in, uh, precisely that uh, December 23rd call that I just mentioned, the president, uh, President Trump, asked President Erdogan to be sure not to harm the Kurds who had fought with us uh, against ISIS. And uh, as both Secretary Mike Pompeo and I have said publicly, we, we understood President Erdogan to have made that commitment. Now, this is a very complex military environment out there. And so we, what we wanted, what we're still pursuing in these military-to-military conversations are assurances and protocols and procedures so that the, the, everybody feels comfortable with how this is going to happen. Uh, and we're, we're hoping those discussions, which will continue next week, uh, will produce results that are acceptable on both sides. You know, what we did was to give the uh, Turks a, a piece of paper, a non-paper, that's a, a fancy diplomatic term for just being a set of ideas, but expressing what the U.S. position was uh, fully agreed upon by the Department of State, the Department of Defense, National Security Council, so that so that the Turks knew we were all speaking with one voice despite the media commentary that would have you believe otherwise. Yesterday, CNBC reported that Turkey will go ahead with its planned offensive against Kurdish militias in northeastern Syria, whether or not... For a second, what do you make of this, Matt Spaulding, um, of the Kirby Center? I think John Bolton is trying to restate again that there is no um, miscommunication here. Everything is crystal clear inside the administration, and Turkey understands it. No, I, I think that's right. And this, again, this is a wonderful exchange which walks through the, the, the steps. What, what I read when Erdogan did meet with him, I, I read that as his signaling message received. Um, and so, uh, but uh, Bolton just laid it out in that answer going directly from a phone call in December with the, at the presidential level, uh, carrying that out. And what he's doing now is carrying out that directive at the military level, which is more complex. Uh, that strikes me as an organized uh, foreign policy that's thinking through and carrying out the directives of the executive. Uh, this is not chaos, and I was actually quite uh, quite impressed by that. And he's doing it diplomatically and officially through stated positions, and he's now conducting the foreign policy of the Trump administration. And he's doing the president's bidding. This is where I think uh, later in the interview, and we won't have time to get to this, I read to him a headline from the New York Times this morning that says Trump and Pompeo embrace autocrats and disparage opponents at home. And his response was, oh, for God's sake. (laughs) It's just the funniest response, Matt Spaulding. No. Well, you have to imagine we have for so long been, uh, been not acting in a world where we think this way and where we act this way. So we're not used to it. But this is how the the world mostly acts. There are all these people in the world, not all of whom are our friends, not all of whom are exact uh, uh, replicas of our democratic republic, but we have to work in that world. How do you do it? That's why we have a constitutional system set up with an executive carrying out policies. That's why you have a Congress that legislates, but otherwise gives room for the executive to do those things. And that's why you elect executives based on broad understandings of principles and strategies and then they carry them out. 
I think in an odd way, in, in, in light of all this chaos and all this going on and all this anti-Trumpism and this and that and the divisions in our politics, we're actually seeing politics here in a way that reminds me of, of an older sense of how it should operate, perhaps clumsy here and there, perhaps un, uh, not stated exactly right here or there, but this immediate uh, example with uh, 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 Pompeo and Bolton carrying out the Middle East policies I, I think is a, a very good example of a quite impressive array of how foreign policy should operate based on executive direction and, and his principles carrying out uh, to our uh, friends and allies and, and not friends and non-allies. I agree completely. We'll be back with more of the analysis of the statecraft as practiced by Donald Trump through his Secretary of State and National Security Advisor after this. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, concluding this week's Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Matt Spaulding. He's the director of the Kirby Center, which you ought to follow on Twitter, and he's with Hillsdale College, of course, all things Hillsdale, at hillsdale.edu, hillsdale.edu. Dr. Spaulding, I want to play one more exchange from the interview with John Bolton, all of which is posted over at hughhewitt.com. Here's the key moment. If Turkey unintentionally or intentionally fired on and wounded or killed American troops, what would be the consequences, Ambassador Bolton? Well, you know, it's it's exactly this concern that American service members not be put in jeopardy, uh, uh, especially by a NATO ally that was principally on President Trump's mind. Uh, the first duty of the president is to protect Americans, and, and in implementing his decision to withdraw from uh, northern Syria, northeastern Syria, he didn't want uh, the Turks or anybody else to take any action that would put them in jeopardy. So, uh, I think that's why we've all been saying publicly uh, that, and it was part of the presentation we made in Turkey, that uh, the Turks should not take any military action that's not fully coordinated through military-to-military channels with us. Uh, in the last hour, Admiral Stavridis, former NATO Allied Supreme Commander, told me that if the Turks fired on and hit any Americans, that would trigger Article 5 for other NATO members, uh, and they'd have to act. Do you agree with that assessment? Well, I think it, it depends on the circumstances. I don't want to speculate. I assume that the Turkish military will try and comply with what uh, President Erdogan committed to President Trump. As I say, these discussions are, are continuing. And, and Stop hopefully- right there. Do you notice Matt Spaulding about statecraft? Um, Admiral Stavridis, who's not in the government, said, oh, that's an Article 5 violation. Right. Every member of NATO would have right. to come in. Right. And the National Security Advisor says, I don't want to speculate. I don't think President right. Erdogan's going to want to do that. Well, it, 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 but it also made the classic response with it depends on the circumstances. Yeah. This is why we speak of the virtue of prudence, right? There's a principle uh, at play here, but it always depends on the circumstances. That's how it becomes a, a virtue, to be prudent, right? Um, so so a- absolutely, I thought that, that was a, a wonderful exchange. Um, and you can see how they're thinking through their minds. One, one you see the, the, the complications of uh, the Middle East, of course, but it just in general, all the the moving parts that we're generally not aware of. As far as the, the press is concerned there, it's just like this is blunt force uh, by an autocrat, uh, meaning President Trump. Um, but there's actually a, a lot more going on here. I think Bolton's got this just wonderful grasp of all the moving parts, um, and he's thinking through all these things. Nothing you brought up in any of this interview is not something he has thought about at some length and also had a pretty um, thought-through if incomplete or unstated answer. Uh, oh, and, so and, and, I, I thought it was extremely impressive. One last delicate bit. Here we go. Is there daylight between the president and Secretary of State Pompeo and or you, uh, Mr. Ambassador? 
Uh, no, there's not. You know, uh, when when I was out in Israel and Turkey, I think I spoke to the president four or five times by phone. I spoke to Secretary Pompeo about the same number of times. Uh, General Dunford was uh, was was with us in uh, in Turkey, and as I uh, mentioned a moment ago, the position we presented to the government of Turkey was one that we had uh, cleared through all the normal diplomatic and bureaucratic processes precisely so that the U.S. spoke with one voice. You know, the media love to find splits in the administration. It's sort of a hobby of theirs. Uh, and I think the media also have a problem, you know, when they don't know the full story because they don't get to sit behind me at my desk or behind Mike Pompeo, they learn of something and they think, well, my goodness, we've just learned about this. This must be new or different or conflicting when, in fact, it's just part of an unfolding plan. All right, Matt Spaulding, that was just a beautiful put down of hot takes from everybody, including me. You know, when I do a hot take, we have no idea. No, that's that, that's that's right. But but it's also it was a general put down, or at least a correction to our, our politics. Everything happens today so quickly, and in such short amounts of of time and information, and quick reaction. Um, whereas in in the, in the world, what we need, and in politics generally, what we need are people who have have studied the big questions, um, understand the the, the principles. But but then are, are are aware of and are really thinking through the circumstances and the particulars to create something which we call statecraft or our statesmanship. Whether we're talking about this example immediately before us in the in the Middle East and, and your interview was was um, with Bolton, or talking about Henry Clay trying to prevent the Civil War, right? That's this this larger phenomena we are trying to. Uh, cultivate here. It's not merely for the sake of history that we talk about these things. This is the way of of thinking that we need desperately today to to solve our problems, but also make sure this country is secure and safe in the world. And that type of thinking, that way of thinking, um, is is what is so so crucially important, both in domestic and foreign policy. And I think this is a great example of that uh, all, throughout that interview. And I I think that. Um, oddly enough, even though President Trump, we can say, is a disruptive president, he's breaking things up, he's he's shifting things around, and there's a uh, kind of the tectonic plates of our politics are moving. Simultaneously, I think we're also seeing in various places um, a, a revival of this older way of thinking, because in the case of Bolton, you've got somebody, I think, who is well-versed and thoughtful, and same thing with Pompeo. Uh, and domestic policy potentially as well as we're thinking through his options to carry out his oath in light of his relationship in Article 1 or Article 2. What a Hillsdale dialogue this week. Thank you, Dr. Matt Spaulding.